Hey everybody, welcome back to the Eat Well Podcast. Uh, this week I'm hanging out with my friend Mara Kerr uh, from Crow's Nest Wildcraft. Now, Mara and I have done a couple of cool things together. We, Mara helped uh, deliver a hide tanning workshop uh, with Eat Well, and that was a ton of fun. But we've been meaning to get together and talking more about what Mara does in, in the space of sort of wildcrafting and and uh, healing and, and well, and hide tanning. I just actually dropped off a bison hide uh, at, at the property where Mara uh, is living uh, that, that Mara's gonna take on and tan for me. And uh, I'm excited about that project, but we, we talked about what we've been up to, got caught up and thought it'd be a good idea to, to sit down and talk a little bit about hide tanning, uh, wildcrafting, healing, uh, and, and connecting over and building community or maintaining your community over, uh, over uh, Zoom and webcast and all that kind of stuff too. So that's what we're up to. So anyways, I wanna welcome Mara. Mara, welcome to the Eat Wild Podcast. Uh, how are you and where are you right now? Hey, thanks Dylan. I'm doing well. I am in the beautiful East Kootenays on Tanaha Nation territory. Just in my backyard with the Pileated Woodpeckers. Yeah, so, so we've been kind of getting set up and troubleshooting our audio and there's a, there's a woodpecker that's going at it, just it's not very far away. Yeah, but yes. I heard, I've heard some nice songbirds uh, uh, as we've been setting up and I, and I hope that you can name all the different songbirds that are, that are and their songs uh, as we go. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'll try for that, but I'm a high tenor, not a birder. So don't get your hopes up. Yeah, yeah. okay, cool. So, um, all right, so so we met because um, actually uh, one of my friends uh, had, had done your workshop. So, had, so you host um, high tanning workshops around the province um, and, uh, and a friend of mine took your workshop and said it was amazing. You got to meet this woman, Mara. She's amazing. And then like a week later, another person, another friend of mine came up. You got to meet this Mara woman. She's amazing. She's like totally the person you need to like work with to do hide tanning and all kinds of other cool stuff with Eat Wild. You guys are totally aligned. So, and both of these things came in at the same time. At the same time, I've been looking for um, someone to work with to do a hide tanning class. So I was like, okay, I got to get a hold of this, this uh, amazing woman that, that my friends keep talking about. And then I was like, at this odd thing, I was like, I was out at, uh, I was in the Squamish territory mm-hmm. in one of my provincial parks, uh, that, and I was actually at work. And the uh, one of my counterparts in park management had set up this cool thing with uh, Squamish Nason Rediscovery Camp. Uh, in one of our parks, uh, we've partnered with the Squamish Nation to build a, a, a longhouse. Okay, what's the name of the bird that's, that's calling? Uh, well, a uh, hummingbird just flew by me. <laughs> I think that probably got on camera. It was really close to my head. <laughs> oh, oh, I hope we got it. I hope we got it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Anyway, that we were, <laughs> I love. I love it. It's like not na- na- nature sounds, you know. On the, on the, yeah. 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 One of my buddies, he, he listens to my podcast. He's like, he's actually a professional audio engineer. He's like, he's like, you don't really mean to do this, Dylan, but all your podcasts actually incorporate like really awesome like background noise like of, of like the, totally. both people try and get that stuff in it's just total accidental because <laughs> we do so much field recording anyways yeah. i'm glad that you're outside and i'm glad you're capturing nature on the call um anyway so so this uh this counterpart of mine had set up had, had been working with the squamish nation to to build a, a rediscovery camp with indigenous news from from squamish nation in the park at this uh at this uh, longhouse that had been built um a few years ago and uh and i happened to be up there for a meeting and they said well we should go check out this like rediscovery camp uh since you guys are all up here and so we wandered over to the longhouse and there was like uh a, a group of people uh, from mostly from from the squamish nation learning how to hide tan and they, a bunch of hides were getting fleshed and and of course then i like met you mara who was leading this group of indigenous youth to do this hide tanning work hide tanning workshop with the nation and I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like three times in two weeks, I'm not only like recommended to meet you and now here I am, like I, totally out of weird circumstance, like walking into uh, uh, this part of my work that's, and, and there you are leading a, a workshop. So I figured this is serendipitous. We were meant to meet and you're certainly, um, anyways. So um, tell me a little bit about what were you doing? Like, what was that program for you with, with the Squamish Nation? What was that about? Yeah, that is an incredible school group that I am really lucky to get to work with. 
Uh, the school is called Statmas. It is nestled underneath the mountain of the same name, which in English is called Chief. It's the mountain that presides over like the whole Squamish Valley. And that school has traditional culture curriculum embedded into it every single week. And so I was with the little ones in the program that's called Cultural Journeys. And I go up there every so often, a few times a semester, and we do some really fun skills together. But that was actually our very first high tanning camp. And it is a really amazing place to do it. That area does not traditionally have a longhouse. It's actually the traditional deer hunting grounds. So to be up there with mule deer and coastal blacktail tanning hides was just something else. Um, it was funny that it was you who came around as well because Shar Joseph, who is the knowledge keeper in the Squamish Nation that really like holds a lot down at that school, she was joking around like, oh my god, the big wigs are coming. We have to look professional. And we like got out our hatchets and started like cutting kindling. We're like, look like we're like really busy and like doing <laughs> stuff. And then it was like you and a bunch of folks just come around saying hi. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there's some great shots of some of the park rangers jumping in there and spelling off the kids on the fleshing. I got a couple of great shots. Nice. So, yeah. <laughs> the so, kids are always so happy to teach others. That is one of the reasons that I love teaching them so much because then the second that they know how to tan a hide, you know, everyone in their family knows how to tan a hide right away. Yeah, yeah. Well, very cool. So how long, okay, so, so how long can you, so a, a young kid like that, you put them on a hide, how long will they stay focused? Because I, 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 I mean, I remember I, I tanned one hide um, when I was in university, and now and I, I'm I'm retired from tanning hides now. And, uh, and I, I I remember just being a tremendous amount of work. How long will will like a young kid stay focused, fleshing or like a hide? You know, I don't give one hide to a small child and I say, okay, you got to like bring this back to me tanned. <laughs> it's not quite <laughs> that level, but I'll bring a couple hides out for a group of kids. And whenever they're feeling it, they will, you know, flesh the hide, take a pumice stone to the hide, whatever it is. When they aren't in the mood for hide tanning, I also like bring some bows and we have a shooting range that's like out the backside of the Alice Lake Longhouse. So it's pretty free form. I would say like the kids are engaged all day, but not one of them is forced to work a hide for like five hours straight. So you can not, tell. <laughs> not like slave labor. <laughs> no, I'm not, they're not like my hides when I'm making these kids tan either. Yeah. But it's amazing. Like you can see when the hide tanners come out, there's always going to be like two or three kids in a group that are like on that hide for the whole time and don't want to go when the bus comes. And I'm like, yeah, I, I feel you. I would have been like that if I was you. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. I like that. Okay. I want to come back to that. A, a, a high tanner and how you how it's just, it's innate in us, <laughs> as some of us. I got it. So so maybe before we get too far down the road, let's just do a better job of introducing you. Why don't you tell us about your, um, you know, first of all, your, your where, where you're from and what's your project? Yeah. Sure. So originally, I am from Treaty Four Territory, all the way over on the prairies in southern Saskatchewan, and I have lived on the coast for most of my life for the past fifteen years. And I run an environmental and ancestral skills education platform. It's called Crow's Nest Wildcraft. And out of Crow's Nest, I teach workshops on hide tanning, wilderness survival, and herbal medicine. My background is as an herbal medicine practitioner, and hide tanning and herbal medicine became my two specializations as I moved along in that learning journey. Uh, and out of Crow's Nest, we have created a nonprofit called Limina, which started as an annual ancestral skills gathering, and it is now kind of blossomed to become a multifaceted workshop series. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. And now that it's this strange time of COVID that we are all living in, a lot of my work has become online and still trying to get people the information they need how to do things on their own at home. So I'm also spending a lot of time on video these days. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's cool. So that was actually one of the things we we, we, we were thinking about a couple of things to talk about, and we and we chatted about. Uh, of course, the bison hide is something I want to talk about, and what and where the bison hide is going to go. But maybe you've let you you've brought us here a little bit, and uh, I'm curious as to like, you know, with your background, what are some of the questions that people are asking you 
now that we are in this sort of COVID time that, 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 are, that are coming through to you in, in your realm of professionalism, I guess, um, what are some of the things that people are asking you right now? Yeah, when COVID first started, I had a lot of people reaching out to me saying like, all right, it's time for me to start tanning hides because I've got a bunch in my freezer. <laughs> and <laughs> it was pretty amazing to see that that was the first thing a lot of folks thought of was, what am I going to do in the wild now? Because I have to like get out there. And sometimes that appeared as a certain level of panic when it was early March and none of us really knew how severe the pandemic was going to be. We saw like a lot of people moving out from the city and trying to wildcraft on their own or going into traditional territory that they had maybe never entered before, not really knowing that they were in the middle of a harvesting patch and mm -hmm. wanting to take from the land. So I saw both sides of it. I saw a really incredibly inspiring moment where people were connecting to each other to try to figure out how to skill up in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. I also saw a lot of folks entering the wild and like the same with the same mentality that I think a lot of people were taking from the grocery store, like a hoarding mentality of not understanding the impact of their footprint. Okay. So, so you're, so you, you would have seen some, I, I can relate to this a little bit in, in, in my world because, you know, all of a sudden I started getting like three, four, five phone calls a day for people who wanted their firearms course, which is not really a, you know, we, we, we offer the firearms course as part of our business, but it's not the main part of our business where we, I would expect to get three or four calls on a butchering workshop or a hunting course uh, workshop uh, throughout the day. But the, the firearms stuff, you know, there's a lot of great people do a great job of that, but we, we offer it to the people who want to get it from the eat wild kind of folks that are a little, maybe less, uh, less gun oriented, more hunting and harvest focused. Uh, anyways, but this, like the interest in firearms, like kind of went crazy. There was this like, mentality of people that were, I think, you know, wanted to make sure they had access to this, I guess, firearms as we went into this pandemic. And I just, I, I, I kind of helped, all of a sudden I realized, like, I was like, oh yeah, this is happening. Like people are scared. I think people are a bit scared about what was, and that was back in March when people weren't certain about what things were going to unfold. So uh, I can see that same, you know, like wanting to get access to medicine or food or connection with the land. Uh, I could see that all kind of happening and uh and yeah that would make a lot of sense if people would be reaching out and trying to find out more about you know yeah the, getting nourished from the land in one way or another so. yeah it's interesting that firearms was one of the first thing that came to people's mind because a firearm is not your first line of survival <laughs> it really is not if you don't know how to move in the woods if you don't know where to find food in the woods firearm is not gonna do much for you you're not mm. gonna just suddenly know how to hunt no. so really um that's really a symptom of people acting out of fear and acting out of scarcity and i think like you put it really bluntly when you say it's people trying to connect to the land if, if that's truly the basis of where we're coming from, then we're going to have like different priorities. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree hundred percent. I, I don't think that, I, I think, I don't think that necessarily the people that were calling me looking for their hunting, for their firearms license where people who were necessarily getting connected to the land. Uh, yeah. But I do think that it was that sort of like initial fear of like, Hey, this thing is happening and what do I have to do to get prepared? And in some people's perspective, like having a firearm in the city is being prepared for whatever's to come. Right. Whereas other people like me, I'm like, maybe I should shoot a bear this year because maybe I should like, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to travel to other parts of British Columbia to harvest like deer, elk and moose, which I rely on every year. I might have to hunt more locally and a bear is a local, it's something that I can harvest locally. It's not necessarily the first thing I would choose to harvest, but I'm getting my head around maybe going for a bear hunt, which is different. And, you know, certainly thinking about, you know, other things like nettles and things like that, that I, maybe I can connect with nature by just going out and harvesting some local things that are, yeah. Okay. What's yeah. that bird? What's that bird? You know, this is not fair to you. I realize this is not very nice at all. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll leave I it up. I believe that's a junko, but I don't want to say it's a junko and then have some like birders listening to your podcast be like, nah, that girl is lying. So oh, no, no, that's good. Now um, generate comments. That's what I need. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, not being able to travel is something that we're not very used to having put upon us these days. Like, I consider my home in the broader region in which I live to be this massive, like, hundred, several hundred mile radius. And really, like, no human community prior to the 20th century ever thought of their home base as being something that large. And so to realize that where we have access to can shrink all of a sudden and that we're like we thought was our hunting ground is now like not a place we can be in we actually realize like our land base from which we get our food in the wild is much smaller and much less diverse oh my goodness yeah the privilege that we have as like i feel this in i mean i feel like my local when i say they they the, the recommendation is to stay local and i'm like well my local is british columbia like my entire <laughs> like i go fishing on the west coast i go up north to hunt you know and i go out east to hunt I, it's totally my i feel connected to all these parts of british columbia that that i feel like they're my home and they're my local but i recognize what's actually happening the reality is that i can't expose any potential risk of spreading the virus to small communities around around bc and that's what really the objective is of, of staying local but but it is it does kind of make you realize how privileged we are to like to have that like you say that spit like that huge realm to harvest from or to experience or however you connect with nature and be able to travel all through first columbia or even farther i suppose and and connect it's it's a and then being asked to be like, okay, no, no, we're going to stay at home for maybe a year. Like it's, it's pretty, yeah. pretty intense. <laughs> like it's, and for some of us who've like taken advantage of that privilege for years, it's very, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with it to be honest. I mean, we're coming up to a long weekend here and like, like, you, like you're in a beautiful place right now. I like you're in nature and if I could like swing the camera out and you could see what I'm looking at, like. As people are like walking by my front, like parading by my front, my front yard, like it's um, not the same experience, you know. Like I'm a bit envious. Yeah, I'm definitely feeling for people who live in the city these days. Yeah. So. And I can see that I can see the drive, like you know, like I and and I think that that's maybe what going back to what you're talking about, like, look, I think we're all reevaluating our 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 choices around like being like is being in the city worth it enough that to be like to be cut off with it completely if if something like this happens and i and i and i think there's going to be a sentiment and maybe at least from my perspective i think there's going to be a lot of people reevaluating whether city life is what they want long term or if they're going to make that when when things open back up and we can Re reevaluate our lives and our life our, our lifestyles um that more people will be moving back or moving out of the city into like the, the smaller communities of first columbia Do, have you had any sense of that from, from from where you're where you're at from your community you know i think there's a lot of people in small communities who are incredibly happy to be there but up until this point they're the folks who have like experienced the most isolation of anyone because the way that people tend to live rurally is in isolated units on acreages where you have like mm -hmm. so much space in your own home but your nearest neighbor is far away um, maybe your nearest neighbor is even like driving distance so i think it's also causing people who live rurally to reevaluate that style as well I lived on Cortez Island for a long time, and for me to go visit any of my friends is a 20-minute drive. So <laughs> the city is where it felt alive and felt incredibly thriving. Um, and interestingly, that makes for a really different strategy for not only COVID, but for wildcrafting and resourcing up generally. So I was just spending time in my territory, and I was in a community where people decided to self-isolate together as a unit, not as individual households. Yeah. And so that felt like the most connected I think I've ever been in my life because in my isolation pod were about 30 people. Oh, wow. But we were living like quite separately from town. We were relying a lot on wildcrafted food and we just generally weren't going out. And so you have a really different strategy than when it's your community you're looking out for and not just yourself. And that feeling of isolation totally disappears. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I uh, when I last saw you was was when I when I dropped off the bike tonight. So the only actual adventure that I've had outside of Vancouver <laughs> was to drop off the bison hide with you in in uh, territory, and uh, and that was my big adventure. That was a nice day actually. It was nice to go for a drive and a beautiful day, and um, ended up. But we had a, we had a bit of a program like where I was going to pull up to the driveway call you and say hey I'm, I'm here and i was going to pull down the driveway and i had prepared the bison hide inside of a plastic bag and then had it sort of set inside of a giant garbage can and then i had like kind of all ready to like spray everything down with bleach and hand it off to you in a way that like <laughs> there was no possible zero risk of bringing vancouver to your community and yeah but... yeah yeah we definitely don't trust the city <laughs> oh, i don't blame you <laughs> appreciate the care that you took yeah no, that was, yeah. that was it was a great day actually. It was nice to see that next step. So, so maybe we'll go down this road with, with talk about the bison hide a little bit. But so, of course, last winter I, I I got to participate in a bison hunt, and we ended up coming back with two bison. And I have one of the hides from from one of the bison, and I and I'm they're just beautiful. Eh? Like the the have you ever tanned a, a bison hide before? I have. Yeah, okay. they're incredible animals. So amazing! <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, th this hide is, um, it found its way into a really special project that I didn't even see coming at all. I thought I would just be tanning it and I would call up a couple friends and see who wanted to help because a bison is not an animal hide that you tan by yourself. It is something that you do in community because you have to. Yeah. And I reached out to a dear friend of mine named Suna who just so happens is in the middle of this very long art project that incorporates her ancestral culture into contemporary art. And so she is taking teachings from Chippewan Nation, of which her grandmother is a part, and she has several bison hides that she's making different art projects out of, and they're going to be in installations. So she needs to make rawhide out of her bison hides, okay. and we are going to set up a buffalo camp out here where i am and a few friends are coming by and we're going to spend two weeks just tanning a lot of bison hides so so my vice is my bison hide part of this project yeah i mean your bison hide will be tanned at the same time perfect so, so, so it's, it's yeah. in company like they are herd animals right so it's good that it's another bison um, so i'll feel happy it'll be a happier bison hide exactly yeah it's gonna get the transformation it deserves oh, i'm excited about it. so so what have you have you had a good look at that that hide? What are your initial thoughts on have you have you investigated it? And, and uh, a little it? bit, but mostly I'm leaving it in storage. I don't want to mess with the care you took preserving it because <laughs> I know that that in itself was a big step. So every time I get a hide from someone, I really hope that they're willing to flesh it themselves. It's a really important step. You don't want to leave meat on a hide because it can cause micro rot and the hair will fall out of that animal. So if you want to keep the hair on, you got to get the meat off right away. So I'm always asking people to do that work. And that's when people are like, oh, wow, high tending is really hard because this in itself is really hard. And it's only the first step in about 12 steps. So. Yeah, I know. I know. That's about, <laughs> like I said, I retired. Uh, you know, and, and I think that the, 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 uh, the hide that I ended up tanning when I was in university was Somebody asked me like, "Oh, well, if you're gonna if you shoot a deer, can you bring the that the the, the hide? one of my roommates asked me for the hide, so I brought it back for them, and then they kind of started on the process, and of course they gave up about like halfway through. I think they, I think they managed <laughs> to soak it maybe, and they were like trying to start to scrape it, and I, and I was like, okay, well it's halfway done. They've given up, and I felt like I always just felt obligated that it was I was going to uh, um, finish the job, obviously, and and um, and it ended up." taken over and eventually other roommates sort of jumped in and lent a hand. It was just, it was so much, it was, it was enough work that I was like, okay, we've done that. And then we had this piece of buckskin was the end result, which I think we turned into a couple of drums, you know, which, which, which worked out good, right? We tried to skin in a cup. We had actually like a couple of drum kits, like actual like rock and roll drum kits in the basement. Thanks. I think we skinned a couple of actual like a Tom and maybe, yeah, a couple of drums in the basement with, with the hide and made one sort of tambourine thing. And, it was great, mm -hmm. but like we didn't know what we were doing. But anyways, but that was totally. that was first and last experience. So so maybe you can tell us and I uh, walk us. In, and, and this is actually probably good because some people that are actually on this listening to this will want to get a, 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 
a hide tanned and they probably want to know what they should do from the moment that they are starting to treat the hide uh, on the animal. So when they're taking it off the animal, what are some of the steps that they should do from the first, uh, basically skinning it to prepping it and getting it ready for a, a hide tanner? What are those steps? And then maybe we'll talk about what your process is after that to turning it into a, a beautiful buckskin or a beautiful hide that you might throw on a couch or something. So yeah, for sure. What are some well, care thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> first, I want to say that every skill is hard when you're a beginner. So I don't want to frighten anyone out there by saying that high tanning is too <laughs> difficult. It's definitely within reach of everyone. Yeah. And I should be cautious. For... <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, no, I should mention that I'm very impatient. So like, <laughs> a, a very like methodical, a mindful process such as high tanning is probably something very good for me yet that's my reaction is that it's like oh it's too hard <laughs> so, so i should really learn to be more more open to the concept of high tanning It'd be good for me yes well yeah it definitely takes patience it's often like a multi-day project but um the first step is skinning the hide off of the animal obviously and if you are, are a hunter or if you are a hide tanner you probably have different priorities when you're skinning an animal so i can always tell if someone is a hide tanner when they skin an animal you make the cuts on the very back of the hind legs of the animal that's how you get the most surface area and have a hide that lays nice and flat after you've tanned it and you don't use knives when you're skinning everything is by hand you like physically pull the hide off of the animal so the first cuts you make around the legs around the neck and the front arms that's it and the rest of the time you're just using your hands so I definitely encourage okay. that for everyone because uh, how if do you, you... Okay, you, have to, you have to break that down for me. Because <laughs> I definitely pulled on a lot of hides and not, if I could pull them off, trust me, I would. And, and you can do this with the truck. We have the truck method video on the... Oh well, my God. That you probably <laughs> made. <laughs> no, I've seen it. I actually work in a butcher shop where we have uh, hydraulics that off of the animal itself so it's not as loud as a motor which is nice but it's also a lot less work but if the animal is an elk or anything bigger you definitely have to use your knife to get in between the layers of fascia but anything smaller than an elk even really big mule deers you want to just be using your hands because if you take a knife to it you inevitably will cut the hide and if you cut the hide you can't make nice buckskin or leather out of it and so you've kind of done yourself a disfavor from the beginning and it's not going to make the process of learning tanning any more fun if you're dealing with like a lower quality material okay so so, <laughs> uh, so you pull okay so i still I, there's no <laughs> okay so uh okay so it, it so in the context of like kind of you got a, a, a mule deer laying on the ground in front of you as a hunter and you and you're okay. trying to get the the hide off like there there are parts where like i feel like you can kind of get enough purchase on the hide and kind of like lean into it and pull it back like particularly along the back and down towards mine but all around the arms and stuff and like I, like i find that it's like you just don't have enough purchase and not without pulling the whole dragging the whole animal around so like yeah, yeah. Okay, let's back up a second. Okay. So I'd say get yourself rope and cut that little spot on the ankle between the tendon and the bone. Yeah, yeah, I know the spot, yeah. Tie that rope around that tendon and then hoist the animal up so it's hanging, even if it's hanging by one leg. Okay. And then start skinning it. <laughs> So if you skin an animal when it's hanging, it's a really different experience than skinning it on the ground. And what you do is you pull up and then shoot down and it's your whole body weight yes. that yes. physically kind of almost rips the hide away from the animal. Okay. You can also use your elbow. You can like get in there like this and fall. It's pretty great. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. this is where the disconnect <laughs> is. That I, and now I see the disconnect for me because as a... That makes sense. Yeah. Because I like obviously the bison... Like we, we, there, there was, it was laying dead in a meadow and it's okay. thousand pound animal. <laughs> so we're not going to hoist it up to like the, the poor little willow tree. That's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, for top of it. That's fair. So, so it is going to be skinned on the ground and we're going to skin half of it 
and then we're going to pull the meat off, and then we're going to roll it over. We're going to skin the other half, and All then right. pull the meat off. So that's the that's the only option available to us, short of having a tractor, which to come out and like hoist. Yeah, up. Um, I mean, with bison and moose, their hides can be fifty pounds, and so I know a lot of people want a field skin because it's that much easier to take it out of the field. Yeah, but, and to, then to pack it out too, right? Like in order exactly. for us to so we'll we would have to field. Yeah, and, and and a deer, you know, occasionally you can drag a deer back whole, back to camp. Um, but of course, you run the risk of you drag it for hours, which, you know, then you run the risk of pulling the hair out on the on the drag side. Um, probably fine. I would imagine that's probably fine for buckskin. But, um, but Yeah, so it's a hard choice. I mean, you're always dealing with limited resources when you're out there in the fields. And like, as a high tanner, I'm going to say, yeah, pack it out with the skin on just do it <laughs> just throw, that, throw that bison on your shoulder you know just muscle up yeah. and pack it out <laughs> you can make a backpack out of them easily and you just tie the legs around and you just walk it's fine yeah. yeah okay so i could see that and i because I, I when i when i when i skinned out that bison i was really thinking i was like I was thinking about you, Mara, and I was like, "Okay, I better do a good job because Mara's gonna, you know, crit, you know." Be, that's why the first thing I asked you is, "How did it look?" I wanted your positive reinforcement for Thanks. how well I did. But I remember we were we were we were doing a bit of a um, a video on how to how to break down a bison. Uh, we had a film crew with us, and we and we did like a how to gut a bison video and and process it. So so it took a little longer because I was very conscious of like trying to skin it out without with without cutting the hide. And, but also without leaving any meat on it that I was then going to have to come back to later on and, and skin off. So it was quite a long, tedious process and lots of little tiny like knife cuts as I went. It wasn't, it was, it was a tough job. Yeah. 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 It's never a quick and easy process, but it's always worth it in the end. Okay. So if you can pull the hide <laughs> off and that'll reduce the amount of knife contact, which makes sense. And then obviously if you can't you can't right so um, and then what so if i'm using a knife give me some parameters of what i should be trying to do with a knife to, to do the best job possible if i can't pull it while you're skinning yeah okay well it's pretty straightforward if you go slowly like pulling a hide off of an animal is actually the the quickest part of hide tanning and it can take only like five minutes to skin a deer that way like a medium-sized deer but if you're using a knife you just want to aim the tip of it where the fascia is which is that layer of membranous tissue that separates the muscles from each other. And there's also a layer of fascia in between the muscles and the skin. And it's pretty thick on elk and bison. And so you have a bit of wiggle room to make sure you're not actually cutting right into the skin. And yeah, just aim for that. And when you get down to the neck, that's always the toughest part of the animal. And you just keep using in like a circular motion, always um, maintaining a horizontal line if you can if you think about like where the animal would be hanging towards gravity it's a horizontal line that you're constantly making evening the evening it out okay and then, then you want to take the meat off as quick as you can and if you are planning on tanning that hide you either freeze it or salt it to preserve it for later okay so i ended up uh one thing that I found that was when we were skinning it, the one thing that really helped is the, is the pulling part. You still have somebody on the end of the hide pulling it as you're still trying to cut in, and it kind of as someone pulls it, it exposes that fascia and that line you're talking about, and it makes it a yeah. little easier to kind of navigate. But yeah, like I at one time I had three people pulling the bison <laughs> hide, and I'm I'm running the knife along trying to like clear it out. But but yeah, so so once we had it off. Um, we were lucky because it was sub-zero, it was minus 10 or something, so I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't really worried about it until I got back to Vancouver. And 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 then I, um, so it, is it okay if it's frozen? If, I, if it stays frozen and stays cold, will it, will, it, will it slip if it's in the freezer? If the meat is on the hide, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you talk to trappers, they will have an even like harsher critique of that than I will because trappers are dealing with usually the very thin small fur bearers mm -hmm. and they take the meat off right away. I found that if meat is on a hide, even when the hide is frozen, it does cause thin spots to appear on the skin. 
most of the hides I work with, I turn into buckskin. So I'm making hair off leather. So I don't actually know if the hair would have fallen out or not, but I can tell that it causes decay in the skin. So yeah, even if it's frozen, you want to get the meat off as quickly as possible. Okay. Cause I, I, so we brought that, I mean, obviously the, as soon as you rolled up the hide and came out the next day, it was frozen solid. It was minus 18. Yeah. So like there was no, like there was no time to, to go over it again and clean everything off. So we brought it home and it was still frozen solid. And then it went into my freezer frozen solid. And then eventually I was like, okay, I've got some time ahead of me. I can work on it now. And I actually called you and, uh, and, and asked you what, you know, what am I supposed to, I've got this thing. It's in the freezer. What should I do next? And, and then what did you tell me then? What yeah, that's a classic phone call I get a lot. Hey, I've got something in my freezer. What do I do? <laughs> yeah, so the classic high tanning setup is something we call wet scraping. It's when you take a round beam, which acts as your work surface, and a flat tool, which for me is um, a modified wood planer blade. Looks kind of like a draw knife, but with flat handles instead of handles at 90 degrees. And this setup you use for several steps in the hide tanning process. You drape the hide over the beam and you mm -hmm. take your tool and you scrape away from you and you get off first all of the meat. And then later when you're in the tanning process, it's the same setup you use to take off layers of skin. Um, and if you are making leather or buckskin, you're also taking off the hair and the outer layer of skin. We call it the grain layer to get down to just like the dermis. The dermis. The dermis. So what? What is the dermis? Okay. So <laughs> skin is made up of several layers, and the very outer layer is the epidermis. That's what high tanners call the grain because it looks grainy. It's where the hair follicles are, and it's the surface of the skin where the hair actually grows from. Okay. Underneath that is the dermis. So when you are looking at buckskin, like true brain tan, smoke tan buckskin, you are looking at the dermis. You're looking at the under layer of skin or like the, the deep part of the skin. And beneath that on the inside of the animal is the membrane side, which is lots of tissue like material that doesn't really have a lot of form to it. Okay. Is, is buckskin the same? Like if I wanted to make like a leather vest, like a, like a nice supple leather vest, would I make that out of buckskin? Buckskin is a really tricky word. English does not do as many favors as a language when we try to grasp what high tanning is because <laughs> it has thrown together so many words from other parts of the world, from hunting world, from just so many things that come together. So buckskin is not named after a male ungulate. It is a coincidence that a buck has skin that skin. becomes people, buck skin yeah. but it's not a coincidence that the word for a dollar is also in the word buckskin because it was currency uh, so okay. the reason we call this particular type of leather or hide material buckskin is that it's put in a bucking process to make the hair slip and when it comes out of that bucking process that's how you get to the point where you can scrape the epidermis away. Okay, so before we get too and far, and traditional I, we, leather is not made in that same process. So okay. <laughs> it's one thing we got we got to clarify that what when you say the hair slips, we've used this, the term slip a couple times, and we probably should give people the context of what that means. So as you're saying that, oh yeah, I mean the hair falls out. Yeah, the hair releases from the <laughs> skin. All. Yeah, okay, and we call it slipping. It falls out. <laughs> yeah, we, we and we call it slipping because if you don't take care of your hide properly when in the field like so say if you've shot a sheep or or uh and and you were to you do your best to to pull the hide off the animal and roll it up and do a ball with some with some salt if you don't put enough salt on it it's my understanding that the the, the hair will start slipping essentially the the meat or the or whatever's left on the hide will start to rot and then as soon as it starts to rot the hair falls out which is slipping so. Yeah, that's true. Hair falling out or hair slippage is the first sign of rot on an animal and it will usually start on the belly. Okay. So the whole exercise for, for a number of, like for, for me as a hunter, one of the things that I'm thinking about uh, when I go like sheep hunting is I, I've got to decide how much salt to bring. So there's sort of a rule of thumb, like bring a kilo of salt for a sheep hide 
if you're only going to be a couple days to get out of the woods. So, that, so you have a kilo of salt. If you, if you were to shoot a sheep, you, you do your best to pull the hide off, clean all the meat off, and then spread it out. Let it dry out as best you can in the sun if you have that, and then spread salt out over the whole hide to try and draw out moisture. Uh, what am I doing there? This is what I'm told to do. I don't know what I'm actually doing scientifically. <laughs> Maybe you could explain what that actually is, what's happening there. I can explain a little bit, but a lot of it I leave up to like the great mystery. <laughs> I don't necessarily know why it is that salt acts as this universal um, I don't know, savior of our hides, but it is a really incredible preservation method because it's non-toxic and it's not going to cause any damage to the hide, but salt spread out on a hide will draw the moisture out from the hide so the hide stays dry to the touch and all the moisture remains in that layer of salt and it reacts with the skin in such a way so that it stays off rot for years. I've had salted deer skins in my storage area for up to three years before any bacteria find their way to them. Oh wow so yeah so that's what I that's what I learned about with this bison hide is that like I had Eventually, I got kind of like I had I had the bison hide in my freezer for a while, which which I understood that if I as long as I had it cleaned up enough, rolled up in the freezer, like I, it would preserve there long enough till I could give it to you. Um, but then at some point, I was like, I can't have this in my freezer anymore because I have to put the bison meat that's coming from the butcher <laughs> in my freezer. So it had to I had to change it up. So so you gave me advice to then spread it out and scrape off all the flesh and then salt it liberally that's what you and then if i did that so if you went into my gear room there for about two weeks i had scraped everything off and then i run this like a mm -hmm. bunch of uh salts over the whole hide and just like it was amazing it was just like drawing out moisture for days and days and days i could just see it pooling it was yeah, incredible totally. how much moisture is in there so it just kind of allowed it to dry out for as long as i could and yeah, yeah. and it, it's amazing that we can see the reflection of the ecosystem an animal lived in in its hide because we live on the coast in a very wet climate. It takes a long thing, long time for things to dry out. Bison typically live in a drier climate. And so I don't know if you were noticing any like water droplets on the fur or anything, but I always find when I'm working with sheep that I can tell they are not made for a moist climate. No. They literally soak up moisture from the air. So you can be in your house feeling perfectly dry and a sheep hide will like grab that moisture and the wool will feel wet to the touch. Totally, exactly. Because I remember a couple times I was like, I, I, I had had it rolled out and so it was skin side up, covered in salt for like a few days. And finally it's like, okay, there's no water pooling anymore. Like it seems like the, the salt has done its thing. I had a fan going back and forth. So I was like, okay, it's, it's looking like I could potentially roll this up and you know, put it on a shelf and wait till Mara and I can hook up to get this to you. And I, I would go to roll it up, and and then underneath the whole like all the hair underneath would be just saturated <laughs> with water. Like I'm like, oh great. So now I've got to like flip the whole thing over, dry out the other side, and like just get move the moisture out of its hide. But I think it must be like you totally say like it's it's just that the whole thing is designed to capture moisture, like the the, the hide itself or yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it totally is. And like the different tanning methods that you use as a natural high tanner will, you know, you really choose what works best for your climate. So I'm jealous of people who live in dry climates because they get to wear their buckskins all year round. And I definitely <laughs> don't get to. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so we've preserved this. I've done my best that, that, to dry. So I've saw, I've turned, I, I've did a careful job pulling this off the bison as best I could without like with leaving the meat on the bison and the and then the and then the hide just just having a nice clean hide when I got it off got home salt I went over it again I cleaned up every little bit of flesh like you told me to and then I salted it as with as much salt as I could could find in the city and then uh, it was right it was right during a salt uh, there had been a bit of a cold snap in Vancouver so all the salt in the markets was gone because oh <laughs> so I was like trying to find <laughs> salt it was hilarious. Um, anyways, I, I, we got nice and salted, and I think I did a good enough job. So I got it over to you. So, so I'm curious, what's going to be the journey for this bison next? Like, where, where is this bison hide going next? What's what's going to happen to it after this now? So this bison step? is going to be smoke tanned, which is the tradition of hide tanning that bison evolved with. So this bison is going to be in great company. 
Um, Smoke tanning is also called brain tanning because one half of the tanning agent is brain from the animal. The other half is smoke. So the first thing that's going to happen to it is that it will be framed up into really large frame. I don't know how you fit that hide in your freezer unless you literally have a walk-in freezer. But yeah, this hide is going to take a lot of work. It's going to be in a really large frame. It gets strung into it so that the hide lays flat and it will just be dried that way because it's already been wet scraped. The next step is for it to be dry scraped. And we are going to actually take away layers of skin from the membrane side of the hide. We're going to thin it out a bit. You said you wanted something you could throw on your couch. So that means it's going to be thinner than it is at this moment. We'll get yeah. it down to the point where it's something that's very flexible. Yeah. Well, you'd asked me an interesting question. You asked me a couple of things like how, like how big is it and how, and how soft do I want on a scale of one to five? And like, I imagine that like if this, I mean, I have no idea what the reality is of, of how soft and how ro durable or robust this will be in the end. Like I, I imagine like, could I just like, how could I throw this on my bed as a bedspread? Like, or could I throw it over the back of the couch and like just have it as part of my living room setup? And will it, will it survive that experience? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely going to survive longer than like your couch. Well, which is made of like plant textiles. <laughs> I guess so. I'm just thinking about the actual, uh, like the hair and, and it being like, will it, well, it's, yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking. I, I, I thought maybe it would just, I, I hear that like, you can't, I've heard that if you do a deer hide that you can't like throw it on the back of your couch if you do a deer hide with the hair on. It, it'll, okay. It'll, it won't survive the, this being worn on. Well, deer and antelope are two animals who have hollow hair. So that hair breaks off. It's very brittle and the inside of it is hollow. It's literally a tube that's closed at one end. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. the reason that deer hair doesn't last on a tan hide is not because the hide is less durable, but because the hair itself just snaps and so it will come off. So that speaks more to how different hide tanning methods are best for certain animals over others. There's nothing okay. wrong with that, but it is just in the nature of deer and antelope. They're going to lose their hair. Okay. Your hides, your buffalo hide is going to be okay though. Awesome. So can I wear it as like a, like a, like a, like a, a cloak? Can I have a buffalo cloak and like... Yeah, if you want me to put a hood on it. That'd be great. Okay. Yeah, it could, sure. it'd be great. So I want a buffalo cloak. Right. But go, go just out keep on. adding to the list of things. Like eventually it's just going to be like a jumpsuit. <laughs> this is going to be my, my PJs. It's going to crawl into yes. the buffalo hide for the night. <laughs> Oh, yeah. My friend, actually, Selena, I don't know if I don't know if you had a chance to meet Selena. She's awesome. She's one of our instructors at Eat Well, but she brings her bear hide when she comes hunting because she's Thanks. she's she gets quite cold. She gets like genuinely uncomfortably cold when she when she's out like hunting and it, and it's just not good for her, for her her makeup. So she brings her bear hide and she sleeps on her bear hide on top of her thermorest and, and, and on her cot in her part of the wall tent. And uh, just like keeps her warm and cozy. So yeah, that's totally the way to do it. Every year when I'm collecting hides, I go to Montana, and the structure that I'm living in is a wickiup. It's basically a, a debris hut, and I sleep on skins and I sleep under skins, and that is really the only way that I would want to survive in Montana in November. Yeah, yeah, totally. I get it. It's like yeah, it down gets wet and then you get cold. So you know. Yeah, maybe definitely. I'll pack my bison hide on my next backpack trip. Yeah. Like you need more bison hides for all the things yeah, that you want to do with totally. them. Totally. Can I get an ultra light one, please? Maybe four pounds, maybe. <laughs> Packable. Cool. Okay. So next step. So 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 what what's the next step for the hide? Where, where's it going next? We've we've dry scraped it. It's stretched out. What's next? We've taken down a few layers because we want to make it nice and flexible, and then is the moment where the brains come in. So. Brains are basically emulsified fat. That is the primary ingredient. The specific constituent is called lecithin, and that is like a universal emulsifier. So when emulsified fat sinks into the pores of a hide, it lubricates them, and then it allows that flexibility and suppleness to come in. And at that moment on is when you start working the hide. You start putting motion into it by using tools, even just using a stick to like physically move the layers of skin. 
that's where I would say a lot of people give up, especially if they <laughs> don't know like, what the end result is, because that's a process that can take anywhere from three to seven hours, really depending on the weather and depending how many people you have helping you. Okay. That's great. Three to, that's three to that's why I called a few friends. Yeah. <laughs> you, got a, you got a team bison. Um, exactly. Okay, so, so, okay, so I, I scraped out the brains of both bison for you. Um, how much brain do you need for one hide? Oh, uh, yeah, that's really the question. It, it seemed like a very small <laughs> amount. I mean, not, not like it's a very small amount of brain in a bison um, for a very yeah. large hide. <laughs> it seemed proportional. <laughs> there is a phrase out there in the world that every animal has enough brain to tan their own hide. And I appreciate that sentiment so much. When I was first learning how to tan hides from my teacher, Katie Russell, that was the very first thing she told me to not believe. She was like, throw that out the window. Okay. <laughs> it's not true. I was like, what? But that would be so nice if it was true. It would be such a magical world to live in. And over the years, I've come to appreciate that wisdom more and more, even though it is not actually something I practice. But what I learned is that in the traditions of the Great Basin and the Plains, people have a very specific way of tanning animals with their own brain. And I won't get into what the details of that are, but it is important in that tradition for the specific brain of that animal to be in the hide tanning process. So if you have that animal's brain, that's great. It can stay with the hide. If you are just using anyone else's brain for me i use pork brain for most of my high tanning because okay. that's what i have access to commercially i'm then putting more like 10 animal brains into one hide okay so 10 pork pork brains is equivalent to one bison brain i'm just kidding sorry, <laughs> sorry. i'm writing down my recipe here for brain tanning here Sorry. So, but you use up to 10, 10, 10 pork brains for, for a hide. Yeah. Yeah. They're okay. tiny. Pigs are smart. Very tiny brains. They're tiny brains. Okay. Um, so, uh, I know I, I felt, I, I delivered the hide and I have this bag of brains for you, um, which I yes. forgot to bring along with the delivery. <laughs> uh, I wonder if I could like put it in the UP, put it on a plane and send it to you. <laughs> if it survive? was yeah i mean you could uh, can you can it, mail can, me the brains if you can, want can, can, it, can, it, can it is it sorry actually my question is is uh do the brains need to be like fresh can they can they rot a bit like if i was to send them to you and it took 48 hours to get to you would uh, is it okay if they rot a bit i imagine they're going to rot when you work them into the hide as it is right that's a great question too because i feel like when it comes to hide tanning there's an attitude of like well i don't know it's kind of gross so can it be rotten? And the answer is no. <laughs> Nothing can be rotten when you're tanning hides. If it's rotting, you're doing something wrong. Uh, I think it's like part of my task in the world is to like make hide tanning something that is a lot easier to work with. And a lot of times the reason that it's so hard for people is that stuff is literally falling apart on them as they're trying. So I would ask you to not just mail some like brains across the raw brains. Okay, I'll, to me, I'll pack them in. I'll pack them in. I'll pack them in ice, and then I'll put them in a. Yeah, I'll figure out a way okay. to get them to you. Something that I do for any listeners who are planning on getting a lot of brains out there in the world is that I can brains in mason jars, and I use the same pressure canner that I use when I'm canning meat. So I bring these pint-sized mason jars full of brain to all of my high tanning classes and it makes it very easy for folks I just hand everyone a jar and you take your jar and you put the brain on the high that you're tanning oh, so cool. that's a really great way to store brain as well if you don't want to keep it in your freezer oh yeah so you can pressure can it so you yeah. so can cook it okay well that's yeah. easier I can do that okay pressure can do it, that. Send it out. yep or <laughs> yeah Follows wrap it in bubble wrap bubble wrap yeah, absolutely <laughs> okay all right so so we've so take us down the next step of what's happening with the bison hide okay so i think we got to the point where we put some brain into the hide yeah and then we worked it a lot that's going to take all day and it really is going to be a workout the bigger the hide is the thicker the hide is the more work it is mm -hmm. so i totally encourage people to start small start with sheep start with rabbits even if you start with a small deer they're really 
not comparable to something like an elk or a bison. It's just like, you know, it's literally a different yeah. beast. So this bison hide is going to have, I would say at least three softenings. So that's like three separate days of us working together, softening it. And in between wow. each softening, we're going to smoke it. And what happens when you smoke a hide is that the aldehydes in the smoke rise and come into contact with the lipid molecules of the fat that you've just put in the hide and they react with each other. So there's a literal transformation moment that happens. We're not just preserving the hide, we're actually turning it into something brand new. So it's textile, it's no longer skin. Oh, that's very cool. Okay, you gotta talk uh, about a, what, a, aldehyde? What's, yeah, what's, to break that aldehydes down. are constituents in smoke. They are a product of oxidization. And for whatever reason, they react with fat molecules in a way that changed humanity and is very convenient for us. So yeah, it's a fascinating process and it can be recreated in a number of different ways. One of the ways is that you can rancidify the fat. So if you're working with fish instead of mammals, you don't need to smoke the hide. You just need to expose the skin to warmth and then cold and then warmth and then cold. And the fat in the skin will actually produce its own aldehydes and tan the fish that way. Okay. But when you're working with mammals, you use smoke to do it. I've seen on your Instagram some some of your uh, fish hides, fish skins that you've you've tanned. It's quite beautiful. It's a cool thing. I didn't, didn't know you could. Do yeah, that. every single animal's hide can get tanned. It's really incredible, and the methods apply across the whole animal kingdom. Cool. Okay, so let, let's. So when do I get my hide back? So like, tell what's the next <laughs> couple steps? So I'm getting excited. It's starting to sound really great. I gotta get totally. this beautiful cloak and bed throw. Um, this is really just an interview to see like when you're going to get your hide back. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so I'm going to be working on it in July. No, no, um, no, no, yeah. <laughs> next, next steps, next steps is what I want. From, yeah, from the so, smoking, yeah. So smoking is um, the last step unless you need to put a couple more softenings into that hide. So for bison hides, if you are tanning them in the brain tan method, you're probably putting at least three softenings into it. But at that point, you really have turned it into a textile. It's never going to be skin again. And so it's just a matter of getting it to be as soft as you want it to get. And that's it. Wow. Okay. And see, so this whole process, the hair is able to stay on, and, and it'll eventually just be a soft, supple, yeah. beautiful thing. That's a, I, yeah, I don't think it's easy. Textile. Yeah, it's easy. Mm -hmm. Sounds super easy. And yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, very thankful that I've been, yeah, I, I passed on this to you. And I... Excited to see what comes back. It's kind of cool to be able to, to to have this conversation and kind of get walked through it, and uh, it'll be kind of fun when I when I get it back. I'll probably be have a chance to like talk about it again on the podcast and maybe show it off and when I yeah on the social media nice. and stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, thank that that it actually doesn't sound as daunting as I thought, and and uh, I can see now how this would actually make for a great workshop to really engage people in a process. Um, so, so can you want to walk me through, so you do a number of these, you've been quite successful at offering these uh, high tanning workshops. Um, can you walk me through what one looks like? How do you, how do you pull it together? Because it sounds like a very long process, but how do you do it in a way that you can, you can bring people together and give them this opportunity to, to experience this? Yeah, totally. So I offer two different types of workshops. One is a personal consultation, which is for folks who you know, call me up because I've got something in their freezer. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know what to do. And that's when I go to someone or they come to my studio and we just tan hides together. And I show you how to do that. The other type of workshop is a multi-day workshop. And I focus a lot on brain tanning. So I bring my hides back from Montana every hunting season. I spend a couple months there collecting hides and then spend the rest of the year tanning them and teaching other people how to do it. So on day one, we scrape the hide. On day two, we soften the hide. And on day three, we smoke it. And it's usually groups of about 12. It's plenty of time for everyone's hide to turn into really beautiful buckskin. And those all happen either in the lower mainland where my studio is, or I travel around Southern British Columbia and teach people in their community. Yeah, cool. Are you, have you sort of contemplated if you could offer this sort of during the COVID pause here? find a way to do it and engage people yeah when the covid pause first started i put a lot of en my energy into 
one-on-one -on -one consultations. A lot of folks whom I've taught over the years reached out to me because they had hides. There's a lot of farmers who are finding themselves with some surprising free time right now or just hunters who realized that they, they have that chance. But now that a lot of my community has kind of started that project and they're on their own feet, I'm offering a series of high tending workshops virtually that are starting with just an introduction to high tanning, the history of it, the cultural relevance, and an overview of all of the natural methods. So there's three main natural methods of high tanning. They all have different purposes. So this three-part series is going into depth with all of those. And people will be able to watch the videos either live or download them later and then be able to learn on your own. That sounds fun. So how do I, how would I how would I how would I find this? How do I how, how do I sign up? Yeah, you can go to my website crowsnestwildcraft.com and you can find me on Instagram at woodland.cur. Cool. That's woodland.cur. That's cool. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll link you on the pod. Uh, we'll I'll have notes on the podcast and and we'll we'll awesome. probably do some social media stuff when we when we roll this out here. Um, hopefully in the next week or so. Um, there's another thing that that actually I, I, it's funny you you uh, it's fun. um, you had invited me to participate in the Limina um, uh, skills gathering and uh, a couple of years ago and and I was like well that sounds like awesome and then it was in the Kootenays <laughs> and it was kind of during hunting season I was like oh I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> like, timing's a little off <laughs> don't hang out with people during hunting season yeah come on <laughs> <laughs> we've changed it to the spring <laughs> hey I'm available. <laughs> What do you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, so Lim and I actually had to get postponed this year. It was scheduled for late April. So we made the call to postpone it rather than take it virtual. I'm seeing a lot of online virtual gatherings right now, and I think they're amazing. But that really just wasn't something we could offer because Limina specifically is focused on personal healing through ancestral skills. There's a lot of trauma work that happens during the gathering. And it was born from Crow's Nest because I really just saw a lot of deep healing coming up in my public workshops. And it was something that I felt really honored to hold space for, but that I wanted to create a separate container for it. Mm -hmm. So Lemina got started as an annual gathering. It's a mixture of wilderness skills practitioners and people who practice healing modalities and all of that comes together in the same space. So we are doing a little bit of online offerings because we wanted to stay present with people and mm -hmm. there's also so much coming up for people now with the isolation and the like the hard times that COVID has brought to a lot of folks. So we are offering a workshop series that's gonna take place a couple times a month, basically throughout the rest of 2020. And then ideally when we can meet again, we'll have that gathering in April. Cool. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm available if you want some, some contribution from. Great. I'm going to do, uh, uh, we've been working on a, a web series as well uh, for Eat Wild, just kind of mostly to stay connected to the community and kind of keep, well, largely to like, my own mental wellness to try and like keep doing totally. stuff, keep projects going. Like, um, like I mean, the business is totally was, Founded on workshops and connecting with people in person, and and that's just completely gone from my life. And I'm really realizing how much of an impact that's having on just my, you know, general yeah way of life and, and my mental wellness. So it's been fun. I, I I did a couple of workshops. I've been I've done a few now, kind of prep workshops, just like kind of free stuff to bring people together and test the how get more comfortable doing it. And then uh, the last one we did. Uh, went off pretty good and we, talk, we talked about elk hunting and, and calling elk pretty good but the one I'm looking forward to is um, still hunting in the forest and like sneaking up mm -hmm. on things in the forest and how to like really slow down pay attention and see stuff in the forest as a hunter and uh, maybe that's something I could work with you on it just like how to yeah how to be present in the forest and, and walking around and, and seeing animals before they spook out of there you know yeah and, that's a skill that helps us so much, whether we live in the city or live rurally. It's like a incredibly meditative and grounding practice, no matter like what your lifestyle is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm happy to. I'm happy to bring it to to, to live and <laughs> more so just like challenging myself to get my act together to develop the material. So the more I like put myself out there and, and offer it, the more I'm responsible for figuring out how I'm going nice. to do it. So.
Yeah. <laughs> Strategy for motivation. Yeah. Can overcommit yourself and try to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, this has been fun hanging out with you. It's great to see you. You look great. It looks like you're like, at a very peaceful, wonderful place. Yeah, it's pretty sweet out here. I'm definitely lucky to be here. Yeah, totally. Um, well, um, so if people want to find you and, and, and learn more, what, where, where, can, where, where would we want to send people to, to catch up with you and ask you questions or sign up for yeah. one of your virtual or real workshops down the road? <laughs> people can find me at crowsnestwildcraft.com. That's the main website for Crow's Nest and for Limina as well. And I'm also on Instagram at woodland.cur.cur. Awesome. We'll find you there. And then uh, so you can look for uh, an Ewald Stanfield and a bag of brains arriving in the mail <laughs> here shortly. Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Wool and brains, two of my favorite things. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, well, it's been a lot of fun, and I appreciate you coming on the Well podcast. Hopefully, the recording's okay, and we can share this with people. And um, thank you so much. And I and it's been it's been fun getting to know you more, and I look forward to doing more work with you. Yeah, thank you. It was great chatting to you. Awesome. Okay, okay, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining uh, Mara and I. If you want to find out more about Mara, um, there's there's some details in the show notes, and you can catch up with her there. And if you know anybody that's passionate about um, about well, crafting and high tanning and, and uh, some of the stuff we talked about tonight, be sure to let them know about what, uh, what Mara's up to and, and get connected. And um, yeah, share this podcast if you can, and uh, we'll catch up with you next time. Okay, thanks so much. Bye.